Hello and welcome. It's great to have you here. My name's Graham Alcott and you're listening to Beyond Busy. This is the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, how people define happiness and success, all those simple little questions. Uh, on this episode, we're talking to Freya Wynne-Jones. Freya is my guest for the show. She is a director and opera, music and theatre maker. She works with the Royal Opera House and with Glyndebourne, with very big, very often impenetrable institutions, right through to working in prisons, working with homeless people, working with people who've never had any experience of music or opera before. Um, has a really, really interesting portfolio of work. And uh, we had a conversation on a train a, a few weeks ago where I just bumped into her. She was going off to sing about mermaids in the woods on a, on a Sunday morning or a Saturday morning. And I was bagpacked on my way to the airport to go and watch the Toronto Blue Jays. And uh, we had such a good conversation. I, I just said to Frey, I really want to just recreate some of that and just make it a Beyond Busy episode. So um, I think you're going to really enjoy this one. She's got some really interesting stuff to share. Uh, we talk about workaholism, we talk about fear, we talk about expressing yourself creatively. Really interesting stuff and uh, I think you're going to really enjoy this one. So just before we get into the episode, just to say I've, I've been having some lovely feedback over the last couple of weeks about Work Fuel, which is a book that came out uh, two or three months ago now. I uh, wrote it with Colette Hennigan, who's also been on the podcast before. So uh, go and check out the episode of Colette with Colette if you want to know more. Um, it's a book all about how to have better energy by what you eat. It's something that I have been practicing um, pretty religiously since I worked with Colette a couple of years ago, and it really changed my life. It, you know, just changing some little things in my diet just gave me so much more energy. So if you feel like you ever get that sort of 4 p.m. slump, you know, where it just feels like you know what you need to do, but there's just no energy left in the tank to do it, then what I can assure you is I don't get that 4 p.m. slump anymore. And it's because of all the stuff that's in that book. So go and order a copy of Work Fuel if you haven't already. Um, would love you to read it. Love it. Love to kind of hear your feedback as it works its magic, as it seems to be doing with loads of people. Just been getting some really nice messages about it. And um, just want to make sure that you are all aware that that book is out there. And for the price of a couple of lattes, it will change the way you think about food. So go and check out Work Fuel. So let's get into this. So we're in my shed in Brighton. Freya only lives around the corner, so she's, she's Brighton as well. And um, we're here on a nice sunny day. And let's get straight into it. We start the conversation mid-flow talking about Freya's ridiculous workload over the last uh, sort of uh, few days and weeks. So basically, she's, she's someone who very much lives the mantra of beyond busy. So let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Freya Wynne-Jones. <laughs> So when you're directing and there's like, you're just corralling everyone into the space or whatever, and then you just find that your voice goes, how many days does it take for that to? I just did like 24 days with two days off. 24 days with two days off. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And not just days, but their travel and all that as well. Yeah. So by the end of that, I probably had about a week's notice that it was going to go. Yeah. <laughs> and if I could have rested it, it probably would have been okay, but I still had three shows to do. So. Yeah. Right. Um, so we're recording already and I'm oh. with Freya Wynne-Jones. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Yeah. So just to make your voice and some croakiness appearing. Um, it's a little tired. Which we were uh, noticing on Monday and you dealt with very, um, uh, very with lots of humour on Monday when um, you were directing The Choir With No Name Brighton, which is how I know you. So let's, we'll start there. But um, when you were finding those moments if you were trying to sing the line and your voice was sort of popping you kind of felt like everyone's with Freya here everyone's trying to sort of make sure you're okay and um you're bringing other people in to like do the bits and stuff like that so you're so you're going to be a little bit croaky today on the recording I'm um, hopefully not croaky yeah. but a little lower a little bit lower a little bit more whispery a little bit more relaxed yeah yeah um <laughs> verging on the AMSR thing ASMR whatever that is yes on YouTube. I no, could do yeah. some recordings we and could? maximise <laughs> my potential. We could double this up, couldn't yeah. we, if we both whisper, that'd be cool. <laughs> um, so let's start with Choir With No Name. So um, I have been sort of involved with Choir With No Name for, for many years, but then Choir With No Name launched in Brighton last year. Um, and you are the director of Choir With No Name. So um, do you want to just start by telling people who don't know what it is, what is Choir, and, and also how did you get involved with it? How did you come across it? So the choir with no name is a, a choir that sings 
uplifting pop music. So it's a cover choir. And it was set up to um, work with people who have experienced homelessness or other marginalised groups. And it was set up 10 years ago. Uh, by Marie Benton. By Marie Benton, who is formerly of this podcast as well. So Excellent. we'll put a link to that one in the um, notes as well. Yeah, so she set the, the, the choir up 10 years ago in London and it's just gone from strength to strength. So they opened in Birmingham, in Liverpool, and now we've opened in Brighton last August. Um, and yeah, the idea being promoting well-being and community, but also just coming in and using your voice for uh, a really good thing with other people. Yeah, yeah, Singing yeah. together, I think, is... A huge and amazing gift and I think when you potentially feel more isolated and disconnected from people coming and singing in harmony yeah, yeah it's yeah. a great way to reconnect so I was really up because I used to be a trustee of the choir and I was really up for getting involved as a volunteer mainly because I was really keen on the idea of doing something where I wasn't in charge and I could just show up I love doing the washing up and I love just you know doing the tea and being on the door and all that kind of just the normal day-to-day stuff and not having to think about it too much and just, you know, be led and, uh, and all of that. But do you know what? I didn't, I didn't appreciate, I'd signed up and I was like really like, you know, pumped up about the first week. And the thing that blew me away on the first week was, oh, wow, the singing together bit is really fun. Like for some reason I was up for all the other bits and just hadn't really got my head around the singing bit. And I can sing, so it's fine. But like, I just wasn't really thinking about it in that way. But it is such a buzz, isn't it? And um, you can see why all the studies sort of point to mental health and, you know, singing together being, um, you know, like it having that very positive effect. Yeah, absolutely. I think singing together just for so many different reasons. So, again, that idea of having to listen to the part you play in something bigger is really mm, amazing. Yeah. Because I, I sing solo quite a lot. That's more of what the singing that I've done has been about but there is something so joyous about singing with other voices yeah, and having yeah. to work together and listen and breathe at the same time and mm. um, and hear where you get those clashes and where it was, it's such an exciting buzz. And it it's, yeah, it's such, and I think you're right, it is so wonderful for your mental health or there have been times in my life where, you know, things haven't been going quite right and then I've gone and had a sing and I felt so connected to myself mm. and I think, I notice that a lot because I don't, the choir is one of the groups I sing with, but I also do a lot of singing with people with dementia. Yeah. Similarly, you just see this moment of people reconnecting with personhood in a way that mm. is so, um, you feel really honoured to witness. Do you ever find with the dementia, so there's a dementia choir, isn't there? Yes, I work with a uh, project at Glyndebourne that okay. is um, a choir throughout the year, but then I go in and do the opera project at the end uh, of the year. Right, okay. Do you ever find that people are singing stuff um, and when they've got dementia, it's like they've forgotten everything else, but they can, do they still have a memory of like those certain songs that are famous or that, that, that they knew about before kind of thing? Yeah, you see that all the time. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we, we deliberately teach new music because okay. the whole point, I think, you've got these amazing groups that do sing-alongs and do mm, the old songs yeah. and that plays a really good part in reminiscence or all those things but I think there's that really exciting thing that people with dementia still have the capacity to learn um, yeah. and that's really exciting mm. and that so we do learn new music but I've worked on a lot of projects and I've been involved in a lot of projects I went to watch the wonderful Julian West run a, an amazing project with Spitalfields Music where a lady wasn't really joining in, was a bit annoyed that the violin was too loud. And then they invited her, said, what would you like? And she said, fly me to the moon. <laughs> and the violinist, just being an extraordinary musician, started playing Fly Me to the Moon. And at pitch, this woman sang the whole song, beginning wow. to end. And you have those kind of staggering moments. Um, yeah. I've had people remember that they speak French in dementia sessions. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, okay. where, where for whatever reason we've sung something in French and before you know it, someone's then conversing yeah. and their partner, because the, the Glyndebourne Project's for people with dementia and their carers. Mm. So the idea is you're doing stuff together that's not about tests and well, being that's the right really nice. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and you've had partners kind of staring in disbelief wow. and said, wow, they haven't spoken French for 20 years and yeah. here they are. And also, I guess, you know, when you are with... 
in, in that sort of care relationship, there must be a bit that becomes sort of institutional around that. And so to be able to just do something that's that's fun and joyous yeah. and uplifting must be like... And there comes a hierarchy yeah. in that relationship, I think, because mm, you, the yeah. responsibility you take on. And it's really nice for that to be levelled. Yeah. Both learning something new, neither sure what's going to happen, um, both starting from a level level place. Yeah, for sure. Um, you mentioned Glyndebourne there, so... Is is it fair to say that like Glyndebourne is an important part of your beginning story in terms of career? Yes. So should we, should we let's talk about that? So you grew up quite close to Glyndebourne, right? I'm an Eastbourne lass. An Eastbourne lass. Yeah. And um, were you some were you someone who was interested in opera when you were growing up? No, I didn't know anything about opera. Uh, loved singing, loved acting. Yeah. That was kind of, and and would do that mainly just through school. So I'm state, state school educated. So through school, uh, school choir, school play, um, and for a little bit of time through a, an operatic and dramatic society, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of locally. And I guess, because um, you were just like, oh, state school educated, that's almost like code for therefore I wouldn't have known about opera, isn't it? Like it's kind of part of the, I think the, it's, the yeah. sort of way opera sort of is certainly in the UK. I think it's a big thing that I find when I'm working. Yeah, a lot of yeah. the people working in opera are privately educated. Mm. And, yeah, a lot of that music education that exists in the schools that I work in, it's very rare to go to uh, a private school where they're not teaching classical music. Mm. But it's very hard to find a state school where they're really confident in teaching and yeah. exposing young people to classical music. And we should probably also just explain what Glyndebourne is because I think maybe we know that more because we live near it. Mm. And like my mum had heard of it when I went. She was like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. But like my sister didn't know what it was, for example. And those are always like two good sort of benchmarks yeah. of like sort of regular opinion. They're in the Midlands, so they're kind of middle of lots of stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah, can you try and explain Glyndebourne? Yeah, what it's, it is? it's and... um, an opera house that's set in the heart of Sussex. And originally it was the home of John Christie. Um, and in 1934, he he used to have recitals in his organ room. That's something he used to organise for friends. And he met an opera singer called Audrey Mildmay and thought, well, I'm going to marry her and I'm going to build her an opera house. And she kind of said, well, As you do. if you're going to yeah. do it, John, do it properly. <laughs> yeah. And so Glyndebourne set up this amazing opera house. And when you, I went and watched The Moderate Soprano, which is a, play that's just been written about Glyndebourne oh, wow. and didn't realise but the huge links it has to um, providing refuge and space for people fleeing Nazi Germany. Oh, so so many that. amazing wow. music directors, singers, conductors that fled mm. uh, fled Germany wow. and then and then started at Glyndebourne. So it's a really interesting history from that respect. Yeah. And then, yeah, they started making operas. So they're a festival opera house, which means they don't make operas throughout the year. They just do a summer season and then the rest of the year the opera house is closed. We call it going dark. Hmm. And um and they have also have an amazing education program, yeah. um, which started over 30 years ago now. Um in fact I think started when I was born, so it's 33 years old. Oh well, okay. Yeah. Um we should probably also just say that like Glyndebourne is sort of like it's sort of posh and bonkers, isn't it, as a place? Like so it's in this beautiful setting, and I've been lucky enough to go twice. Uh, both because people gave me free tickets but like um like so you turn up there and it's the setting is absolutely stunning like this kind of stately home and all these grounds and stuff and then it's kind of set up that you watch a bit of opera sort of in the afternoon and you have a mooch about beforehand and then the interval is it's an hour and a half long yeah. is it and the idea of it being an hour and a half long is that you turn up with all your picnic baskets and all this kind of Sometimes it's about the most a, quintessentially English thing. Yeah. So, sometimes with your butler as sometimes well. Sometimes with the butler to make yeah, your dinner. Yeah, yeah it's um, beautiful. And you, you know, pick a little spot and then you just, you know, have an hour and a half to sort of drink your champagne and whatever. And then you go and watch the second half. And then they put on a bus for all the people to go back to Lewis Station so that they can go on the last train back to London. They kind of, the timings, I've been told, are like done so that you can always get the last train home. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... There is a huge amount of glamour to it and that's something that has has seen them very well to make it this really big, beautiful, glamorous affair. And it's all and, black tie, dress code yeah. and all that, yeah. I think they have they have made a lot of strides to to try and counter that a little bit. So they have the tour as well now, which starts at Glyndebourne in October and that is a bit more affordable. Um, they've got 
£15 standing seats if you're willing to do that. Um, and, you know, you, the ticket prices are high because there's so many people working on a production. So you've got a chorus of, you know, 30 people and yeah. an orchestra of 50 people. And so, um, but I, I agree, Glyndebourne also very much, you know, they enjoy the idea that people come for that really mm, exciting yeah, yeah. chance to dress up and have their champagne yeah, yeah, have that experience. But also, like, yeah, the tickets are expensive, but I, I've, I did find myself at this last one that I was at, like, just, yeah, like looking at the size of the orchestra, looking at the size of the cast, looking at the staging, thinking, how do they actually make any money? Like, mm. even though it's, like, really expensive to get a ticket, like, just the costs of having that many people and all the people behind the scenes, the, the economics of a very a very grand theatre in that way. And it's, it's just, it's fascinating to me how that, how that even works. Yeah, they don't receive Arts Council funding for the festival either. Mm, so it's right. privately funded. Yeah. So it does wash its own face in terms of... Um, mm, they've got a massive membership system. Uh, okay, so that Which helps, I think has really sort of, helped. Yeah, right. And if you're a member, you get first allocation on tickets. Mm, yeah. You're still paying full price, yeah. but you're paying for the chance to mm. get your favourite opera and direct her and yeah, on yeah. the night you want to see it. Because yeah. tickets are, can be really in demand there. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so you discovered opera through Glyndebourne's education programme. Yeah. yeah. So... There I was in Eastbourne. I was actually at school at, in Willingdon. And um, a poster went up on the wall of our drama studio. And amazingly, my drama teacher, because I am one of the lucky ones, um, is a lover of opera. And um, she basically just said to me, you need to go to this audition. And I was too young. Uh, you had to be 15 and I was 13. So they wrote a letter and just said, look, we really think... Freya would benefit from this and that her skill set would be appropriate. And, I mean, thank goodness, because it changed yeah, my life. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I auditioned for a youth opera called Zoe um, and got into it. So then I was basically rehearsing from January round to March and then we performed on the main stage at Glyndebourne. Um, when you were, were you still 13? Yeah. Wow. I okay. think maybe I'd just turned 14 yeah. by that point. So I was the youngest member of the cast. Mm. Um and, and yeah, singing solos or? Not in that one because yeah. I was so young. But from the back of that, I joined Glenbourne Youth Opera Group and I was singing solos by, yeah. Yeah, by 15. And, and so now, so your website's really interesting because the, the front thing on your website um, says director and opera music theatre maker. So like it's quite a wide range of things. I've also heard you use the word animateur as well. So you have a very wide ranging sort of portfolio of things that you get involved with. So um, obviously now that involves sort of putting back the things that you, in some ways, you know, like the, the benefit that you got from being part of that, you are now kind of returning the favour to the next generation as well through um, stuff that you do with Glyndebourne and stuff elsewhere as well, right? Yeah, I think the whole reason I'm doing what I do is also thanks to Glyndebourne Education uh, because when I was 17, my youth opera group director Claire Whistler came to one of our sessions and she had spent the day in a prison um, doing opera in prison and okay. it was just a light bulb moment for me really mm. um, of thinking it was something I wanted to do. I think when I reflect on that both my parents were teachers in quite deprived schools and my mum had worked in prison um, and I think it just suddenly clicked as something that I was really passionate about. Yeah. So I knew I wanted to go and do education, theatre and education or um, opera education. So I went to university and did drama and psychology purely on the back of that one conversation. Wow. Um, okay. And then when I came back from university, I volunteered at Glyndebourne and just got as involved as I could in those projects. But it, I think, yeah, it, it definitely feels to me like... A mission because I know how lucky I am to mm. have found this vehicle of self-expression and I know that it's not that every child who's state school educated or you know every person that hasn't hasn't grown up with an advocate for classical music um means that so many people are I'm not I'm not expecting every single person to love opera but I just think everyone has the right to have a go and and to even just be exposed to yeah. it because well. I didn't I went on one school trip to the Royal Opera House when I was about 13 and I just remember sort of half falling asleep through Rigoletto 
on an afternoon. Uh, and then we went back on the coach. Um, that was my sole experience of opera, other than perhaps uh, Pavarotti and Italia 90, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? the Nessandorma uh, the theme tune for the football. Yeah. Um, but apart from that, I knew nothing about opera. But actually, having been sort of like the last couple of years to climb one, it's like, oh, this is something I, I actually quite like, rather than... I, and that surprised me. I, I, I was sort of assuming that I would probably feel quite alienated and not enjoy it. Mm. And certainly like the one this year, I was like, oh, that was great. It was kind of like posh pantomime. Yeah. Really good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I sometimes find that the workshops I do, we we explore the opera in a more exciting way than when they actually mm, go and see the show. Right, yeah. That's always a little bit of a, it can be a little bit of a disappointment. Yeah. And, and I think for me, so the reason why I call myself a maker is I'm just really interested in people feeling ownership in opera. And I think that's been denied. It's, it's a, a really few, few voices that are actually getting to make opera. Mm. And for me, I just feel like everyone should know that they can make something and call it opera or music theatre or whatever, but it, that, that they have as much right as anybody else to, to be involved in that making. Yeah. And sometimes I'll do a project and we'll make something really amazing. But there are still those barriers because you say to young people all the time, this is for you and go and make your own opera and this is it. And then sometimes they still get invited into the big houses and, you know, the glamour of it all, you know, those chandeliers and red velvet and stuff can still be really difficult. I was sitting in a school's performance the other day and a probably 17, 18 year old girl just turned around to her friends and just said, I feel so out of place here. Yeah. And I was, I just kind of almost had a little cry for her because I think. I felt that when I went to Glamour. Yeah. I really did. Like imposter syndrome, yeah. you sort of like, this isn't really for me, like well, I shouldn't be here. So many people want yeah. to keep those walls up, mm. you know, because it make, that's where the money comes from. Yeah. Um, and some people really like opera to feel like an elite art form, but the longer you keep it that way, the less it's going to flourish in yeah. years to come and it's going to stagnate. So Yeah, for sure. Um, another thing that just occurred to me is like, so a lot of what you do is you go... So someone brings you in as the director or they bring you in as as someone who's going to basically sort of consult and, and sort of help a production of something happen. And so what that means is you're probably regularly working on more than one of those things or several of those things and you're smiling and nodding as I say that. <laughs> and also all of those things, even though you might have clients that you work with, like you might do another thing for Glamborn next year, having done one this year and whatever, but all those individual productions are a thing that starts with a blank page. You do stuff for like a few months and then it's gone, like it's finished. So how does that, how does that manifest itself for you in terms of your career? Just the idea of you being in a constant state of change, sort of the birth, birth of something, the living time of something and the death of something. And then that's happening like all the time and juggling several of those at once. Like, does that, does it feel like you never quite sort of land and know sort of where you are? Does that make sense? I think I really love it. Mm, okay. And I think I would potentially struggle if I was just doing the same thing yeah. for the same company. But it is different because if you're assisting or directing a professional company, you've usually got, you know, maybe six weeks of just being on one job yeah and that is something i definitely don't have so i kind of see it like lots of plates spinning constantly mm, constantly yeah. spinning um and you're right sometimes it's that like i'm doing the same project but each year it's kind of reinvented and i know i'm gonna get asked to revisit that again yeah so that's kind of on the back burner a little bit and then the newer projects are kind of coming to the forefront but there can be days where i'm just doing a one-day workshop but you still need to prep for it yeah, learn all yeah, the learn yeah. all the opera, uh, find the way in. Um, so yeah, it's yeah my biggest. It is constantly plate spinning. And you've got some of those constants like choir on a Monday, and you that's know, my first. Yeah, is that the first that's one? That, the that's first like an thing I've taken. Thing. Yeah, where there's no end date. Mm, yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and so if you've got, I was just thinking you know all the names of everyone there. I'm still really bad at, like, there's still loads of names of the members in the choir who've actually been in it as long as I have. I still don't know their names. You know every name, but then you go somewhere else on a Tuesday and you have to know all the names on a Tuesday. So what's the secret of that? Like, what, what, can, we, what can we learn from? 
from you about how to learn I names? I think not everyone does learn names mm. or worry about names as much. For me, it's really important. Yeah. I think, I think it's, I just think it's really valuable to learn people's names. It's something I think, I get very upset when I haven't managed to do it. Um, me too, but I'm, st- I'm still shit. Yeah, <laughs> I'm but sure I, ask, I ask people yeah. a lot, if, like in the, in the, so usually I'm playing name games. Yeah. And that's how I'm clocking it. And then one week I go back and I think, right, I've got, most of these young people with this four kids. So I'll play a name mm. game just to get their names okay, in. Okay, right. Um, at the choir, we don't wear labels. Yeah. We don't do any of that. So mainly I just go up to people and ask them again if I've forgotten mm. and apologise. But then um, I, with the choir, I write down new members' names. Do you? Because yeah. we see new members like every when you week. Go, when you go home, you'll sort of yeah. write them down. Because yeah. we have yeah. like six new members a week. Yeah, it's crazy. It is. It's yeah. wonderful, but it's crazy. Yeah. Um, and then someone who doesn't come for three months and then comes yeah. back, and it's obviously just the nature of yeah. people's lives and stuff. You know, they're going through a lot of stuff, so they they're kind of transient in lots yeah. of ways. But I think the more you see people, I just consolidate. Yeah. And and so I just went back to a project last week that I hadn't been to for a year, and actually loads of kids came back to do it, which was really nice, but did mean. I was aware that I'd only been in their school for three days previously mm. and I would have learnt most of the names. And, of course, I came back and I hadn't retained any yeah. of the names. Yeah. Um, and what's your favourite name game? Oh, I, I really... So, for me, when I'm thinking, what do I need? I mean, what I do a lot is when you go around the circle and you say your name and something true about yourself. Okay. And then you go around the other way and you say your name and something that's not true. Because you're just finding little things like, oh, yeah, they've got three dogs. Or, oh, yeah, they had tea with the queen on the moon last night. <laughs> just kind of getting things in that way. What's the thing that you say that's true about you? Um, I say I'm really good at walking backwards. <laughs> <laughs> Which we won't test in my little shed here. But, uh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, in a moonwalk way or just in a general No, just generally. If, you need, yeah. you know, if we're carrying a bench or something and you yeah. need someone to walk backwards, I'm your girl. <laughs> I've got it. <laughs> I don't know. I just think I'm really good at it. That's pretty funny. Um, so tell me about how how do you, th- as someone who's working in a very creative space, how do you think about productivity and what does it mean to do a job well and how do you define that? I think I always rely on Bernstein who said you need a plan and not enough time. I think that's, <laughs> that's a good philosophy to live by in the job that I do. I think... For me, it's about identifying the quiet periods and then making sure I optimise them in preparation. So, for example, I've just had a really back-to-back June, um, but my March was really empty, and so I used March to make sure I was as ahead as possible. So you were doing prep for some of the stuff, yeah. the stuff that you knew was booked yeah. in for June, yeah. And, and even with that, there are still days where... Um, you know, I'm having to work ridiculous hours because I finish a project and I'm like, okay, got to get that plan mm, return or yeah. got to have that phone conversation. So um, sometimes it's a bit crazy and I just have to pull out the stops. But I, I think as well, I think it's really important to have a plan, but most of my brilliant ideas happen when you just allow yourself to be creatively free in a space and respond to what's actually happening. Just say more about that well i think you can go in with a plan and try and shoehorn everyone into it but mm. actually when you so meet not to group, over not to over engineer yeah. a group session yeah of, yeah i very rarely go in i go in with ideas and i go in with maybe the route i'd like us to explore mm. but i don't think it's that helpful to try and control every element so i don't always know exactly how we're going to set stage something yeah i want to see what conversations come up what images I want to meet the group. I want to hear their ideas. I'm a devising director. Mm. So the big thing for me is um, using what's going on in that creative space and letting other people make it their own and then me working out how to curate it. Which I guess is a really good lesson and analogy for business and facilitation, right? So you can, within a team or within a meeting, have a very strict structure of how you want to go through stuff. But actually you do need to like sometimes sit back and let let the space bring you some of the answers as well as and the indiv- other individuals that in yeah. that space yeah, exactly yeah. and and just and i think really listen and respond yeah. to what's happening not to what you think needs to happen mm. i guess um do you 
do anything specifically around listening skills and making sure that you're tuned in to being able to respond to that stuff? Because presumably some of those things are a little bit below the surface or people are a bit shy or, you know, how do you, like, yeah. how do you keep your listening radar? Um, yeah, you're totally right. I also think when you're workshopping, you sometimes are concentrating so much on what's happening everywhere and not really focusing on... So I, I check in with myself to make sure I'm actively listening. Um, I guess I've got a few techniques. Um, sometimes it's... It, some people will dominate because some people are shy or some people don't necessarily think you want to hear their opinion. So I'm always aware if conversations are being dominated to so a few techniques. Sometimes I might just ask someone else if they have mm, an opinion yeah. or say, I'd love to hear from someone I haven't heard from yet yeah. or say to everybody, I'm going to ask all of you to give me one word or I might point at you and then I'd love to hear what you have to say. And knowing that if they're struggling in that moment, that's fine. There's no pressure. Mm. But just it's amazing just how... the spotlight from the yeah, person. Yeah, and it's amazing how yeah. usually someone that hasn't put their hand up, the moment you call on them, the answer is so articulate. So it's just about recognising how people fit in the dynamic of the space. Mm. Because especially if you're in your class, there's a, there's a dynamic there and you have a position in that. Mm. And that's quite interesting. And I guess part of your job is sometimes to shake that up a bit, but yeah, it must be difficult to do that sometimes. I think it's um, it's a really welcome reminder often to teachers mm. when they say, oh, I haven't seen that young person ever do, blah. Yeah. And that's because it's really hard being a teacher yeah. and you've got to control your classroom and make sure it works for you for a whole year, whereas I don't have to do that. Yeah, for sure. I'm coming in for five sessions and I want to hear from everybody. Yeah. Um, and pretty much everything you do is freelance, right? Yeah, everything. So how, what are your sort of techniques or philosophies around freelance work? So I'm kind of thinking, you know, some of the stuff you do is with the Royal Opera House, like, you know, about the biggest brand and the you know biggest institution in that space. Then you're working with Streetwise Opera and little sort of charity projects and whatever. So do you have different ways of working with each of those? Do you have different fee structures around it? Like what's what's your sort of um, general approach to how you manage the business side of being freelance? Um, my friends once talked to me, she gave me some really good advice about something. I would say that I don't ask for a specific fee. I tend to work around people's structures, but also know my worth a bit. Yeah. And then... And then have, um, I think you have to know how to talk about money with people. I think that's really important. And you have to know, you know what, you, what you're willing to do things for. I was, my friend always said to me, cash kicks or kudos. Mm, yeah. You need two of them. And I love that. That's really mm. helpful. So actually, I will do things for free if it's something I'm absolutely passionate about um, and, and gives me some sense of kudos or, yeah. you know, there's something yeah. in it. Um, I will do projects where the pay is amazing. It's for a really great organisation, but maybe it's not the most exciting job. Mm, yeah. It's a bit more of the ones where you just go in and do the work and leave. Um, so there's a real mixture, I think. And I think that that's put me in a pretty good place yeah. for knowing what I will and won't do. Um, and then in terms, uh, it's, a, it's a complete puzzle piece. Mm -hmm. um, I really love being asked to do new projects. I really like being asked to work with groups that might not have had to engage with work before. And it's also really nice to work with young people like the youth opera company at the Royal Opera House who are fantastic and you're mm. really able to push them. And you need that mixture. Yeah. You know, I really need to be able to work with the ENO youth company who are so articulate and so desperate to make really important work. That's a really important thing to get to be in that creative space and to cultivate that and then also get to go and work with a load of people who have no idea how or what to make and show them mm, a pathway to do yeah, that. Absolutely. Um, and then I suppose, well, a plane going over the head, a helicopter or something. Um, and then I suppose the other thing about being freelance, is, is there an element to what, to the work that you get that is like you have to go out and chase it or is most of what you do word of mouth now? I am really lucky and I mainly get asked to do things. Occasionally I'll get sent something by a colleague um, that will say, it's all this thought of you. Yeah. Um, 
And is that what happened with choir? Is that how you found out about choir? So, yeah, the choir was a really funny one because I, I've wanted to work with Streetwise Opera for a really long time. I've just started doing it mm. last week um, and I'm going to be working with them throughout the next year on some really, really great projects. So Streetwise Opera is an opera company yeah. for people who've experienced homelessness. So it's, so it's long been a, a group I've been interested in working with. Um, and I have worked with some of the guys from Streetwise at ENO. So again, I've 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 been really passionate about doing that work. Um, there isn't a Streetwise Opera in Brighton. Doesn't look like there was one coming anytime soon. Um, and it came at a really interesting time actually, because about two years ago I started reinvesting in myself as a singer and music maker mm. more so than I. I think you know you have to cultivate one career and just really get that working. But once the directing had really taken off. Um, I wanted to explore my music making in more detail. So I started singing again with cross disciplines and not just singing operatic repertoire and actually thinking about what my voice did. Um, and the choir had come to Brighton to do their first big gig. So my, I do know Sam Chaplin, the London choir leader. Oh, yeah. And he'd been in touch with me to... They were looking for a piano or something. I lived locally. Um, I've had a few of those texts yeah. at different times. And so I, I remember I kind of met... Maria, we had a phone call at that mm. point. And then I was talking to some friends of mine who were talking about choir with no name. And they're like, oh, you know, it's going to come to Brighton. They announced it at mm. the gig. And I thought, I really want to do that. I thought, I want to sing some pop music because I was a little bit... Um, the classical music world is wonderful. But again, there are those personalities in it that make it so impenetrable. Mm. And I've always called myself an opera infiltrator because I do really <laughs> feel like... That's what I've been doing. But you still realise there are some points when you think, I've been doing all this work for opera houses. And you still feel like sometimes people don't take it seriously, mm. even though you're in that setting, because you haven't come through Oxbridge or whatever, conservatoire. Um, and so I thought, I'm just going to go sing some pop for a while. That's what I want to do. So I messaged Marie and said, look, I've heard. and I'd be really interested. And she said, great, we are just we've just released the um, cool expression of interest. Here's the thing, fill out an application. Um, and I was really aware that I don't run choirs, but I'm a singing leader, I work in mm, opera, I, read, yeah. you know, I do all of that stuff. So, um, and I'd just done this music making thing with Spitalfields, I'd done an open call for them. So I, was, so I, was, I sent in an application and, um, and I didn't get invited to interview. <laughs> oh, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, fair enough. And Marie said, look, we weren't expecting the number of, choir directors mm. and said I'm really sorry because I feel like I misled you by saying apply not realizing we were going to have so many choir leaders um and then Sam really kindly just said to Marie I really think you should see Freya <laughs> um so she called me up and just said look apparently I've made a bit of a mistake can you come in and do something for us and so what I love about Marie is like she's so sort of down to earth yeah, like she'll, just, she'll just submit that and just be like yeah no well actually, and also i totally get yeah. it because i've not led a choir before yeah. ever and i totally understand that that's pretty important if you're mm, going to be a choir director yeah. and if you've got a load of people who are doing it already um great i would see them first yeah but yeah, yeah fortunately sam just said check her out just give her a try Aww. so marie um marie invited me to come and do something and then amazingly it worked out. So oh, we're very, we're very glad that that all <laughs> happened. Um, yeah, I've loved it. Yeah, I loved uh, it. And we'll be. Um, this is going to go out much sooner than this, but um, I think tickets are already on sale for Christmas. Are they? Oh, don't know. Are they? I've sort of just made that up. It might not be. Well, true. They might be. I remember, like last year, it was on sale months before. So look out for it if it's not on sale now. Uh, Brighton Dome and Cadogan Hall. Hall in London as well. So, um, and we basically sold out Brighton Dome last year, and it was um, it was phenomenal. So. Uh, yeah, it was yeah, amazing. Come, come and check us out. Um, so let's talk about work-life balance. Um, there was a thing a couple of weekends ago where you were heading off somewhere, probably to uh, make music about mermaids in yurts or something, uh, which is one of the other things that you've done, uh, which maybe we'll talk about that in a minute as well. But you were like heading off somewhere on a train and you had texted me on the Saturday night and I was, you, were like, you were like, can I bring music round to, for you to take and give to Marie tomorrow because I'm not going to be at choir and I was like yeah sure but I'm at baseball right now in London uh, and you're like can, can we do it tomorrow and I was like yeah fine and then you texted me at 7am and you're like 
can I come round now, actually? And so, like, <laughs> so uh, you, you you sent your other half, Ben, to to drop it off at like seven a.m. And I was, and I opened the, and I think I said to you on the text, I was like, it's not gonna be pretty, but you can bring it round. And so I opened the door a bit, you know, bewildered to Ben. I was like, oh, she's got you running around early, hasn't she? And Ben said. Uh, this is our life. This is what we do. Like in a really lovely way, is what he said. <laughs> and um, so that is sort of part of your life, isn't it? It's like a lot of long days, weird hours, late nights, coming back on trains, like all that sort of thing. So how do you how do you manage that and make time for you? And how do you switch off? And what does work life balance kind of look like and mean to you? I think in the last year, I've worked really hard to get better at it because I. I, it's very rare that I turn down work. I kind of hadn't got to that point, really. There was always space. Um, but about, yeah, maybe three years ago, I did. No, yeah. Gosh, where are we now? In fact, six months ago, I did the most bonkers 18 months. And those plates spinning just felt like a slightly constant state of panic, like mm, no real right, yeah. let off. I think what was really useful was... So I've been in a steady relationship for a long time. Ben used to have a Monday to Friday job. Um, and even though I work at weekends, one of the things that did do was make me stop at when he got home at six. Gives you a to. rhythm, right? Yeah. Because you're sort of in Try sync to with adjust to that. Yeah. So when I'm when I am working at home, it would be at least when I'm yeah, when I'm prepping from home, mm. stop in the evenings. And when I'm at home and I'm not on a workshop, have the weekend off, which was a huge help. Then it got to the point where I didn't have any evenings and weekends because I was busy and working away a lot. And I have to say, it, it's always that, that slight worry when you're gleeful to be working away because it means you can work till 1am with no one <laughs> noticing right. or saying what and, are you and doing. And you don't have to feel guilty about it. And you're getting yeah. ahead on that backlog, which is causing you anxiety because yeah. um, those dreams are the worst when the brain just mm. won't switch off. Um, I'm trying to get better at it this, uh, this summer, but then I don't know how much of it's coincidence. So I feel like this summer, even though it's been a bit full on so I've had a really really busy eight weeks um I've still had more days off than I would normally mm. um and I've turned I've started turning some things down and just saying no that's too much I, I was just having a conversation with my friends yesterday other freelancers of saying I think I've just just about on the tipping point because I'm I'm six months pregnant just about on the tipping point of thinking wow I can't get up at six go somewhere so on monday i was on a six o'clock train to high wickham ran a workshop got on the train back home ran a choir session and got home about 10 half 10 yeah and i think yeah. i'm just getting to the point now where my body is saying stop yeah. be a bit kinder to yourself um so that's interesting i think when we're younger we you know we've got something to prove and we've got a lot of energy i think i'm incredibly highly energized generally my workshop leading style is that mm. i think i i get into a space and my adrenaline makes everything i do sharper and more exciting but um another director who uh, is, is older than me did say at one point yeah but at what cost that constant yeah, adrenaline right. yeah, yeah, yeah. so I'm, I'm mindful of it i'd like to say i've found ways to solve it mm. i think i've managed to schedule in a few more breaks like i've got some weekends this yeah summer and things like that and adrenaline highs are addictive. So the obvious question from that is like, do you, do you consider yourself a workaholic? I don't know that I've ever considered that question. Um, I really love working. Mm. And I really love chances to be creative. And I would spend more time than I have. And maybe that's proportionate on planning things because it's really exciting to be creative and I don't mm. take it for granted. Yeah, yeah. That a lot of people don't get that in their everyday lives. Saying that, I also love taking the evening off. Yeah. If I've got... Yeah. And it, for me, that's about how can you be productive enough to ensure that you can take those weekends off. Yeah, Like, that's sure. the ideal. Yeah. So... And also take those weekends off so that you can be productive enough, yeah. right? Because it all feeds yeah. itself. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I mean, I don't know that I've got it right. I don't have a fixed system because my work isn't fixed. Mm, yeah. Um, and it, it, the tides of work kind of ebb and flow a bit. You'll get really crazy periods, and then you'll get periods which are more reflective. Yeah. Um, another way of asking that same question about workaholic is to say, obviously, you're six six months pregnant now. Mm-hmm. In three or four months, where you start to get that point of baby arriving. Your diary, your calendar is going to be very blank. So how does that blankness make you feel? Like <laughs> You're still doing like the fake yeah. crying thing just for the benefit of, of podcasts here. But yeah, um, how, how does that make you feel? Um, scary mm. and sad. And I, and I really um, was planning on returning to work as quickly as possible. So the choir has all our Christmas gigs, which I really want to do. And I have a, my lovely dementia project at Glyndebourne in the winter, which mm. I really want to do. Um, and I and I totally want to be able to have a family and not lose my identity as a, a and my career, um, which is amazing. How quickly people's language changes when I've had to tell so many people I'm not taking a traditional maternity because the language shift as a woman is quite incredible and. Um, stuff that you know what do you you mean the language shift just the way people have spoken about the kind of work they're going to offer me in the future you know which is so kind yeah people being really mindful Mm. and kind but just questions that they wouldn't ask my male colleagues if my male colleagues were having a baby we're gonna be a dad yeah Yeah, it just wouldn't happen and i think that that just you know so many of those pervasive kind of stereotypes and things are still there Mm. um but so, but yeah, I've had lots of conversations with other freelancers and it seems to me that people manage in different ways and according to different needs. I'm not going to have to work immediately. I don't have to return to work. Um, and I think the thing that struck me the most is being that the kind of groups of people I work with, I think it's more important I make sure it's uh, as simple for them as it as it is. So instead of me saying, well, I want to come back and then something going wrong, me not being able to come back or me suddenly saying, oh, actually, no, motherhood's instincts yeah, kicked right, in and yeah. I want to be at home for three months. Um, yeah, because it's kind of the, the sort of thing where if you're doing a three-month project or a six-month project and that first two months of the three-month project is is like the rehearsals and they're getting ready, you can't be three weeks into that and then leave because right? yeah. then it kind of buggers up the whole thing. Yeah. Right? So. So you, I suppose you, you have to be a bit driven by yes. what those different groups need. And- so what I've talked about is um, I've, I've kind of said, yeah, let's get cover. So we're going to get some cover in and I'm going to be part of the planning and I'll be there, if, you know, to consult if people need me mm. and I'll come when yeah. I can. So I've said I'll, you know, come and visit a and I'll bring hopefully a smiley, sleeping, <laughs> quiet baby. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I'll just come and, and say hi and stay involved. But, yeah, it is... Um, I don't know whether whether not doing anything will suit me or not. Half of me thinks I'm ready for a little break. Mm. Uh, half of me thinks... I love that you think it's going to be a break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I'm lucky because Ben's yeah. a freelancer too, yeah, so we're right. both going to take three months off. Nice, and that, yeah. for me, is dreamy. I, I did that as well, which, again, so is the sort of benefit of having your own business and stuff, being able to just yeah, take yeah. that time. How lucky. Mm. And I think, I think I would not have considered having children while... Or it would have been. It was very difficult while Ben was working in a nine to five because it would have been down to me. You know, got two weeks probably, and then yeah, and his and his financial, his financial kind of income higher than mine. It would have just you know, even though, even though I'm busy all the time, just being in the industry that he's in, it would have meant that it didn't make sense for it to be him to stop working. Mm, Right, and and I'm also really realistic that I will not be able to earn what I earn moving forward because I can't travel in the way that I do. Yeah, yeah. So there will be certain jobs. I mean, maybe the jobs will shift, but there'll be certain jobs I just um, can't take next to each other anymore. Mm, Because I've done it before where I go to London, then I'm going off to Norwich, then I'm coming back to London, then going to Wales, then coming to Stoke, then back home. So, you know, um, there'll be some readjusting. Yeah, Yeah, there'll be some readjusting. That's all right. Cool. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to how you react to that space, and because um, it feels like filling that space right now is a big mm-hmm. part of your identity and who you are. And 
probably you'd be too tired to think about it too much anyway yeah. so it'll be fine but like and I, hopefully I'm, really quite, I'm sort of quite yeah. intrigued by it as a sort of identity thing you know? yeah I think I'll be really enjoying the next what it is to be a parent I think that's mm. going to be hopefully yeah. a lovely thing I can get involved in mm. uh, and and I have some of my own projects which are ongoing which I wonder if you know if I desperately you know if I desperately need something, I'm going to do some singing practice. Yeah, Never yeah. make time for that. That'll be nice. nice. So it might just free up space for a bit more of my my own practice. Hmm. I think it's really important for people. So um, Colette Hennigan, who I just wrote the Workfield book with recently, um, she's just recently had a baby. And uh, I think she's sort of like itching to get back into work. But I think it's really important to have those, I think she's, not someone who's going to be out of the game for a long time, just like knowing her as I do. But I think it's really important to just have like something that if you do have the sort of time and mental energy, you, you can fill that space with and, you know, just something to invest in you or books or yeah. like, I yeah, like I remember Colette telling me that she had like a big pile of books ready to read and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I have booked in. So my work usually comes in, yeah, six months, sometimes a bit earlier in advance. And I've, I have got projects booked in now. So just thinking about how that diary is starting to fill up. So knowing that there's stuff, really exciting stuff to return to Mm. um, and knowing that I'll probably bring a baby with me (laughs) to Middlesbrough. That'll be exciting. Um, And again, having a great support network with Ben, who you're right, shows up at the door and says, this is our life. He's (laughs) so supportive. And, um, And just knowing that that's, going to be part of the new thing and being really mm. my my great colleague um has a a child and she just once said to me you just get way more productive because every every second that you're at work is a moment that you're not at home so you your efficiency just goes through the roof yeah from her, her opinion is like the procrastination drops away because actually i want to get this done in two hours and then i want to go to the park yeah. and I want to go and do this thing or, you know, so actually I'm quite looking forward to uh, that taking. Crack through it and be effect. home for tea time and mm. bedtime story and all I mean, that sort of stuff. I think like. parents are doing that all the time, yeah. right? Yeah. Like the most amazing organisers under the sun. But it definitely drives you. Like I think it, you know, it definitely feels like it gives you that structure and a little, a little bit more um, constraint. You know, you feel like this is my little limited window that I've got, you know, mm. and even... Just things like if I get up at five or six in the morning and I know that because Roscoe's such a good sleeper, he doesn't get up until like seven or even eight. It's like, right, I've got two hours or like an hour and a half or 20 minutes or whatever that little thing is. You know, by the time I'm ready, it's like you can you can yeah. you can be motivated pretty yeah. quickly by those things. I find it much easier to work late mm. than to get up early, yeah. I have to yeah. say. I'd much rather work till one o'clock, two o'clock. Yeah, yeah. And um, then sleep. And then sleep in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good luck sleeping in. Yeah. Well, half seven, that'll <laughs> yeah. do. I'll take it. Um, not thinking about uh, fears in the sense of like, you know, big disasters or like sort of terrorism or people dying, but like what fears do you have about like the work that you do and like what, what scares you? in? Um, I'm hugely life? scared of um, the lack of access that people are getting to the arts and how horrendously it's been cut mm. music and drama in schools is so just like the scared of the future of yeah what it looks like. because it again i'm really i'm really aware of how lucky i was to have been exposed to an opera education program but you know didn't have parents that could fund me you know there's a reason i'm a singer free instrument <laughs> that's it there is you know that. that and recorder yeah. that's what i had <laughs> And a guitar that my mum had. Yeah. I mean, and my mum loved singing, you know, but there is there is a reason why I'm not. Mm. You know, I go and see orchestras. I'm like, oh, man, I'd have loved to be an instrumentalist. And then I remember, of course, that that's not an option. Three grand yeah, or whatever, yeah. For a lot of big oboe or something. Yeah. yeah. And I think, um, I think I'm really desperately sad that we're not going to have any more working class actors and that we're... Is that like... I mean, you said that so matter-of-factly. Is that yeah? There have been articles about it like recently. Really, it's really wow. problematic. Wow, it's really problematic. Um, Leeds College of Music has just announced it's not going to charge for its auditions. But you know, usually people are having to pay mm. just to go and audition somewhere. Wow. let alone pay for their travel to get there. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's it's really tough. Plus the amount of musical investment. It's people that have been having singing lessons, piano lessons, just how much further ahead they are. Um, I did this amazing project um, for the Royal Academy, for their Open Academy programme, which is incredible. Uh, again, run by the wonderful Julian West. I've, <laughs> I've named him twice today. Um, and we were working with these young musicians from Hackney, these incredible theatre makers. And I was having a conversation with him. These guys are 15, 16. And I said, so what happens if we find someone with talent? How do we help steer them yeah, towards right. the academy? And he, he said, incredibly sadly, the fact is, because they're not already in junior trinity, junior conservatoire, it's very unlikely that they've got the prerequisites wow. to get in. Yeah. And I think that that's a huge problem. I mean, also, for me, it's... Um, it's also about how we're empowering yeah, every people. It's how we keep empowering the people that are on the fringe of opera making to mm. get a platform and get a voice. It's really hard to get producers these days um, to bring your work on board. People are doing some really exciting things, but it's just where the funding is and who are the people that are getting invited to do those things. Mm. And also just working in the settings that we're working, and seeing all the cuts and how that's affecting people's mental health, um, you know, in our, in the choir with no name, just what's happening to people who are desperately seeking a house, welfare, you know. Oh, yeah, we see plenty of those, right? Yeah, yeah. same with my dementia yeah. setting, you know, seeing the lack of, the, co the constant cuts of mm. funding, that people aren't being allowed to stay at home, uh, that people are having to pay for care. Uh, you know, the Dill Not Review that came out that was kind of saying that, People that people should be capped. How much of someone's asset you should cap mm. before taking everything that someone's got. Someone's you know lives in a in a house that they've paid for their whole lifetime, and you get dementia, you're sent to a care home. In theory, they can just take everything. So we're not providing for people yeah. well enough. Yeah. Um, and and while music is a really wonderful way to help soothe some of that, it doesn't ultimately fix some of the underlying issues which is at the end of the day someone needs a home mm. someone needs you know somewhere to sleep that night yeah do you feel like so you've said a few times that you feel incredibly lucky with the start that you had in the sense that you know you had those little moments where the drama teacher thrust that poster in front of you and you have these little sort of moments that have change your life but like you didn't come from the sort of background that has ended you up in Leeds College of Music and um, all those conservatoires and stuff do you feel angry about that do you feel chippy about it like yeah. what's your it was a really big chip yeah. for quite a long time because you hide the chippiness a bit like yeah just the way you're talking about you being incredibly lucky and like it, it's not something that really obviously comes across. I had a real thing about, about not being conservatoire trained. So conservatoire is, yeah, university for singers or musicians. Mm. And no one even, I didn't, I heard the word conservatoire for the first time when I was 21 and graduating. Mm. Someone maybe conservatoire. And I, and I like, thought it was a, uh, a bunch of people not to vote for. I actually thought it was a weird <laughs> conservatory. I was like, well, it's, what what is a conservatory? Oh, right, yeah. You know, how do I grow my plants? It's a conservatory with yeah. a different shape <laughs> yeah. on the top. Of it. Um, and for me, the really big kicker was I'd also been given some advice, which I don't regret because I've had a really fortunate and lovely life and career. But I was told to go to university and then do a postgraduate. But what people don't tell you is that you don't get access to student loan for postgraduate. Right. When you're from a low-income family, that's mm. a deal breaker. It's a really big deal breaker. So, um, you know, I just couldn't fund those things. And, and I think as a result, I have missed out on potentially a... a any career I might have had as, a, as an opera singer, full-time opera singer. But I also think what I've gained instead has been quite incredible. And the mm. skills that I have and the mission that I have and the things that I can bring to groups, I'm I'm not sorry that that's what's happened yeah, as a result. Yeah, and sure. I think I have a wonderful voice teacher 
And she, you know, if I really full-time committed to it, I probably could still go and sing in all the opera houses if that's what I wanted to do. But I want it less, mm-hmm. having seen what the inside of the institutions can be like. Yeah. And having spoken to a lot of opera singers who are so jealous of the work I make, uh, are so desperate to have more autonomy in their work as makers. Um, and I think the thing that my voice teacher always talks to me about is the skills that I bring, that people who have just gone straight from, just gone straight into that institution and into the conservatoires don't have the same access to. So, my, I mean, I'm an actor as well. Um, my musicality from listening and singing to a broad range of music, my vocal technique from being able to sing cross-discipline. So there are all these things that suddenly you realise there are really interesting things. And in the last few years, I've done a few more singing projects that are really interesting and where I've used my voice not as a classical singer. Mm. And that's been really exciting. And the fact that I can use my classical training but but mix it up is really exciting. So having diversity and range yeah. is... Um... An important thing. Yeah, I'm yeah. just starting to find my niche, which is a really nice thing. Nice. Instead of just desperately trying to become an opera singer. Yeah. Uh, and I was going to ask you, just as a sort of final question, um, how do you define happiness and success in your work? But I kind of feel like you just were articulating that, right? Like it, it feels like the success is about how you broaden that access out to different people and how you use that art to make a difference to people's lives is that yeah is that a fair summation of how you'd view it i think so i did a project a couple of weeks well finished last week and it was tough like it was with primary school kids um who weren't particularly i kind of said to my friends this is going to be all about the process and actually it's not going to meet the artistic standards that i'm used to delivering it's just it's not going to get there and that's okay because you look at every child in that space and you see the kid who did nothing but talk on day one who in week three asked for a solo (laughs) and you see like the young people who suddenly step up and step up and step up and then are leading and and that's so valuable and I love the idea of making ripples Mm. I just love that and I love going to areas and meeting kids for the first time and going, wow, you're really musical. And you see that that light go on behind their eyes and, and telling young people that this is a career they can have. I think it's so common, it's, and, and especially today where financial certainty is harder. Yeah. But letting yeah. people know that you can earn a living, you can do this job. And, and I would say as well, some of my work where I'm singing with people with dementia or other groups... Any group, actually, but when you see that moment of someone, yeah, like I call it reconnecting with personhood, but you see that real, that rush of exhilaration. I mean, we've had it in the choir where, you know, people come up to me at the end to just, ex- that almost with, it It kind of upsets me so much how grateful they are. Mm. I don't think people should feel like that, but I also get it. Yeah. Because to have that feeling is so is so wonderful and you know to sing for someone who is late stage dementia I had a lady make full eye contact with me pick up my hand kiss me on the hand stroke my face the carer just said to me you have no idea how blessed you are in that little moment you get this kind of (laughs) this this thing happen that's just incredible a guy a guy in choir came up to me and said said one of them said something about oh you know I haven't used my voice um, when I have, say, so this group of people, you know, fr- from recovery, haven't used my voice sober. Mm. And the other guy who was with just turned to him and said, now you're finding your real voice. Wow. And I just yeah. thought, yes, like, isn't this... And we've had people who have been rough sleeping and actually been pretty much silent or sort of mute, not really expressing anything to anyone and just the world is sort of passing them by for, like, months at a time. Yeah. And they've come in and just been empowered by what we do yeah. right I mean that's all the time and if that doesn't make you happy yeah absolutely yeah um, I think that's a lovely place to uh, finish the conversation so Freya thank you for being on Beyond Busy you're um, so welcome if people want to sort of find out more about what you do if they want to connect with you like where can they find you on the internet and all that sort of thing I have a website freyawinjones.co.uk I'm on I'm on Twitter that's um, I tend to use that mainly for business that's at Freya Tail. And uh, I've got a 
uh, Freo and Jane's director on Facebook, which is a really good place to keep in touch with work stuff. Cool. And what you're doing. So yeah, yeah go connect with Freya and say hi. And uh, maybe you could take me one of those ripples that um, uh, is cascaded out into the world. Thanks, Freya. You're welcome. So I hope you enjoyed that one. Thanks again to Freya for being on the show. Thanks also to Mark Stedman, my producer on the show, and to Think Productive, who are the sponsors of the podcast. If you're interested in productivity training and workshops, and you would like to help your team to be more productive and less stressed, and to take control of what they're doing and love what they do, um, then we can help with that. So thinkproductive.com, we've got offices all around the world, and we can help you to develop your productivity ninja skills and uh, really change the way you think about work. So give us a call, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you, thinkproductive.com. If you want to find out more about this podcast, you can go to getbeyondbusy.com and there you'll find the show notes with all the links to everything we've been talking about during this show, as well as all the previous episodes. Um, We mentioned in the show that we've had Marie Benton, who's the Quiet With No Name uh, founder and sort of national director on the podcast before. So if you want to know a bit more about Quiet With No Name, then you can go and check out Marie's episodes. And there's a whole bunch of other episodes on there from a a menagerie of people, uh, from famous comedians and musicians uh, right through to CEOs and leaders and people just doing excellent work, people with great books out in the world. Uh, Lots of interesting folks. So go and check out getbeyondbusy.com and you'll find all the episodes there. Um, That's it for me, and we'll be back in two weeks' time with another episode. I'm stacking up a few episodes at the moment because I'm going to be away a lot during August, so uh, the plan is to sort of keep rolling them out, and hopefully we'll have enough to keep rolling them out all the way through to September when I'm back. Uh, But the next episode will be out in two weeks' time. So until then, thanks for listening. Great to have you with us. We're back in two weeks. Take care. Bye for now. Bye for now.